Good morning again. Welcome if you're watching online. Good to have you with us as well if you're out in the fellowship hall or the courtyard. But good to see all of you as Mark prayed. And uh, I feel the power of Mark's prayer. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, he's a man that loves the Lord and his prayers uh, are evident uh, of that fact. Um, but we did have a blessed time in the 830 service. We're looking forward to this service and what God will do. We have a special uh, treat. I have not done a baby dedication lately, but not only do we have a baby dedication, and not only do you hear the baby right over here, uh, not only do we have a baby dedication this morning, and you can hear the baby, but real quick, uh, you know, this family uh, is from San Diego, California. Uh, they reached out to me. They attend a Calvary Chapel in San Diego. They reached out to me, what, five months ago or so, and uh, that they would be here in Richmond with other local family, and they wanted to do the baby dedication here with their San Diego, their little family, but also the local family here in Richmond. And one of the cool things about Calvary Chapels, we have about 2,000 Calvary Chapels around the world now. We're a fellowship of churches. You guys know we went down to Guatemala. We worked with La Esperanza there, and we're able to kind of share and help each other out. And so they have family here. So I'm going to invite the Bross family to come up, and we're going to do a baby dedication of little William. He looks really sharp. Uh, and also with them is the godparents, Kim and Eric Stinger. So this is Billy Bross. This is Laura Bross. I have only been communicating through email over the last few months. Now I get to meet them. Uh, but this is their family from San Diego, and the, the Stingers, you guys live here uh, in uh, Richmond area, so they're the godparents, and we just want to pray over them, and little William, any cute, a little bow tie, can you guys get a look over there, I'm, ugly me in the way, of, you know, uh, uh, we all used to be that cute at one time, right, <laughs> and then life sets in, and then, uh, but uh, you guys, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, glad to do this and just to be kind of uh, family in Christ. And uh, they've been growing in the Lord there in San Diego where they've given life to Christ there at that Calvary Chapel. And uh, so Billy, this is Billy and this is Laura, and they uh, sent this verse, and this is just a verse that uh, is for their whole family and, and the godparents. And certainly uh, we all uh, need God to do this in our life as well. And it's in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 14. It says, Create in me a clean heart. O God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach uh, your ways to the rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. And so they'll be teaching these things to their children in the years to come. Right, William? <laughs> I would even attempt, I, I love kids, I would attempt to hold you, but I don't know how, it could go wrong. He, he seems like he's on the edge right now. He's on, should I give it a shot? Is this dangerous? This, you want to give it a try? You want to say hi to everybody? You say hi to everybody? What is this? Going All these people are here to pray for you. All right, we're going to pray, we're going to see if you can pull it off. Lord, we lift up little William to you. We pray your blessing on his life. May he walk with you all the days of his life. May he give his life to you at a young age. 
Lord, we know that this doesn't, this isn't his salvation, but Lord, we pray that he would uh, give his life to you and know that, uh, Lord, that he has the forgiveness of sins that we just read of there in Psalms. I thank you for his parents, Billy and Laura, and the godparents. Lord, may you use them to instruct him and teach him and lead him in all your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. He did good, huh? Best friends now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, thank you. Here, yeah. Glad to do it. Hey, he did great. See, I, he knows I like kids. So, uh, my wife calls me the baby whisperer, and uh, she does. I, I pick them up usually. My record's pretty good with grabbing them, and they just kind of like. I don't know if they get scared and they just <laughs> go into like freeze mode, but uh, he was calm there and, you know, so hopefully, hopefully uh, years to come, you guys will look back and see that he's still following the Lord and we, we're thankful to have the privilege and uh, to pray with you. So, all right, a couple other quick things that was fun to do and a blessing to do uh, this Wednesday night, uh, we have uh, the book of Joel, I'll continue in chapter two, so if you come out. Uh, and also that'll be streaming if you happen to be out of town and you want to uh, watch it. If you're sick or if people at home right now not feeling well, you can watch it online on Wednesday night as I'll be streaming. We'll be streaming that as well as we get into Chapter 2. And I wanted to remind everyone, now Lee and Zach, they are in South Carolina right now. They were attending a wedding, a family wedding of Lee's, and uh, Zach has to fly back to India later this week. And that will be uh, five, four to five weeks that he's in India, tying up loose ends, helping the team. Uh, Lee enrolled the boys in school uh, locally, and so be praying for her. Obviously, she is pregnant and, uh, and due in uh, January, uh, late January, early February. So she's pregnant. Zach will be gone for four to five weeks in India, uh, helping hand some things off to the team there. Uh, so she's not only pregnant, but has the three boys. And so be praying for her and be praying for Zach and, and all the things that uh, he needs to tie up as he goes back to India. And uh, Hopefully later before this year ends, we'll have an ordination service for Zach. He'll come on staff in early January. And so that will be kind of uh, an exciting big step for us. So be praying over all of these things. I also wanted to lift up, you, obviously all of you know what's going on in Israel, what's taking place uh, there in the Gaza Strip. Uh, in uh, Israel's battle with Hamas and all the things that took place uh, last Saturday and uh, everything that's taken place since then. And obviously uh, there's an offensive now or a counteroffensive on Israel's part. But I wanted to remind you, you guys have met John Samara. My friend John is on the left there. My friend Sam on the right. John is Arabic, grew up in Syria. Sam is Jewish and grew up in an Orthodox community in New York. But both of them gave their lives to Christ and now they are brothers in Christ. They both love the other's ministry. And Sam reaches out mostly to Jewish people that are uh, without Jesus. John reaches out mostly to Muslim people without Jesus. And Jesus came to the household of Israel that doesn't know him, but he also came to the nations. And so uh, be praying for uh, both these men. Uh, they have risks. Sam was supposed to fly to Israel. All of his flights were canceled. Sam would take a hot air balloon there if he could. Uh, uh, he would, he'll go anywhere. He's pretty fearless. So is John. And John's invited me and Sam has invited me to go place. I'm like, I'm not as fearless as you two guys. You know, so just, I am called a Chesterfield. You know, so I'm, I'm kidding. I do, go, I do go to other places uh, 
and I do go on mission trips. But at some point, I may be going with one of them or both of them to a different thing. But they just they would covet your prayers, and they are working uh, as hard as they can to minister to people that are in harm's way. And John wanted me to let you all know that uh, in the Muslim countries in Middle East and North Africa, when war breaks out in Israel, this is quite dangerous to the, the former Muslims that have become Christians, especially the pastors, because they start accusing them of being spies for Israel when war breaks out. So, uh, so just keep them in prayer, and, and, and uh, as best that Sam and, and uh, John can minister to the different shepherds that they support uh, in that part of the world, Sam primarily, Israel, John, all over the Middle East. And, uh, and Sam goes all over the United States to Jewish congregations everywhere and in Europe and in South America. And so just lift these guys up, and uh, I know that you will. And then as we pray for a revival in our own nation, which we've been praying for revival for 15 years, and we've been getting on our knees ever since the pandemic, we're going to pray for the nation of Iran today. Last week we prayed for Israel. You say, hold on, Iran, aren't they the one funding Hamas and everything else? Aren't they like an evil regime? Well, yeah, the government is, but there's over a million believers now in Iran. And many have come, yeah, so many people have come to faith in Iran. And uh, you know, John, as I showed, John is Arabic that loves Jesus, and, and I'm glad that he can speak Arabic and reach people that you and I can't reach. But many in Iran are coming to saving faith, and in spite of their regime being evil, there's many people there that are open and even thirsty for the truth. And uh, we know that Jonah was sent to that part of the world. The Assyrian Empire was as wicked as any regime the world's ever seen. And Jonah didn't even want them to get saved. And God said, you've got to go anyway. I, I died for them. And God loves the Iranian people. He loves the Palestinian people. He loves the Jewish people. He loves the Chesterfield people. You know, is there such a thing? But anyway, uh, you are it But uh, if you live here now. But, he, but we're not in ethnicity. But... Uh, God died for the nation, so we're going to pray for Iran as well. And just, uh, just for the sake of time, uh, we got on our knees in the first service, but you can just stay seated right where you're at. And I just want to pray uh, for our nation, but also want to pray for Iran. And, and, you know, if the leaders of Assyria could repent, who knows? Maybe the mullahs over there or the, uh, the ayatollahs, they could come to know Jesus. Uh, and if it would stay off, I know that tribulation's coming. I know that the return of Christ's coming. But if there can be a couple little mini harvests before then, that would be a blessing, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and even of the, the most unexpected of places. Father, we just pray this morning. Uh, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are on the throne. We thank you for your mercy and your grace, Lord. We, uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, in this room that you would first humble our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your love for us so undeserved. We ask that you'd wash us and cleanse us if we know you. Lord, just uh, take anything away from us that would hinder us from walking in your spirit, walking in harmony with you, walking with, in communion with you. We, Lord, we want to lay aside every sin and every weight that we'd run with endurance, but we also, uh, we pray for a world that doesn't know you. Lord, I remember my life before Christ, and, and I know many people that I've met still are in darkness, and Lord, we lift up our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, we lift up those in government, those in business, those in academia, Lord. They might have it all. They might have money. They might have intellect. They might have fame. But if they don't have Jesus, they're not ready for eternity, Lord. We pray that there would be repentance uh, in the churches of America, but also in the streets of America. All across this country, people would turn to you. Lord, we pray that there would be a, a great awakening, as there was in the days of Jonathan Edwards and others, Lord. 
We pray not only for a great awakening here, but in Iran, Lord. They have evil leaders. We have some leaders, Lord, that uh, are right there with them. Uh, but, Lord, we know that there's many that have come to Christ, and we pray that their leaders and our leaders would turn to the true and living God. Lord, you'd turn the hearts. You'd speak to them in dreams, and you'd use the pastors and the evangelists that are in Iran, and, and even those in prison. Lord, we pray for those in prison, that you'd release them and you'd comfort them. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and in the Middle East. And, and Lord, that, that many in Gaza would turn to you. Many in Jerusalem would turn to you. Many in Tel Aviv and Haifa and all across, not only Israel, but around the Middle East. Lord, we pray for Sam and we pray for John. We thank you for their ministries. We thank you that they're brothers in Christ. And, Lord, we're brothers with them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You don't have to be seated because you already are. But turn with me to Acts chapter 6 as we pick up. With where we left off, Acts chapter 6, I did a topical message last week. Before that, we had Pastor Rich from Bethany Baptist here, Jackson's dad. That was a blessing. So we want to pick up with where we left off in the book of Acts. If you're visiting, we're going through the book of Acts on Sundays. As I mentioned, the book of Joel, brand new study on Wednesdays. So uh, pick it up with me with verse 8, Acts chapter 6. Starting in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him seized him and brought him to the council. Then they set up false witnesses and said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses, that Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, we come again before you, your people that need to hear your word, your sheep that, Lord, need to hear from our shepherd. And, Lord, we ask that your word would speak mightily to us. Lord, I pray that your hand would be upon me, your anointing. I could never do what you've called me to do without your strength and without your spirit. Stephen needed your wisdom. So do I. So do all of us in this room. And, Lord, we pray that we would hear from you and your word, Lord, would penetrate our hearts. We'd be hearers and doers of that which you would speak to us. We thank you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. The early church there in Jerusalem, they had recently, as you recall, a few weeks back, they had addressed the gaps that had developed within the ministry that had caused some of the Greek culture and Greek-speaking Jewish widows to inadvertently be left out of the daily distribution of assistance and food. And the apostles, they were stirred by the Holy Spirit, and they determined that other men were needed to be raised up, and if they didn't, the ministry of prayer and the Word of God could suffer if these men were not raised up to assist. And the solution was to find seven, seven the number of completion in the Bible, seven men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom to appoint them over the distribution and other necessary ministry areas 
while the apostles would give their primary attention to prayer, to study, to teaching, to preaching God's word. And the result in this resetting of the church ministry and the apostles uh, ensuring that the proper priorities and order was in place was yet another outpouring of God's blessing on the church. Get things in order, and God will do what God will do. And in verse 7, we're told that the word of God spread, that disciples were multiplied, and a great many priests came to the faith. These were priests that had formerly been resistant to Jesus. Wouldn't Wouldn't it be great to see in Richmond priests and religious leaders that don't know the Lord as their personal Savior, come to know him as Lord and Savior. We've got many religious leaders of various religions in this city and around the world that are very devout. Remember, Nicodemus was devout. Jesus said, you've got to be born again. Being devout is not the answer. Now, we know that the servants of God that he raises up, they grow into other shoes. Remember in the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 24, verse 13, it says, So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. God took Joshua one day from being the assistant to being the leader. And this happened when, um, and other people as well. Remember when Pastor Rich uh, was here a couple weeks ago, he preached about Elijah and Elisha. Remember, Elijah handed off the mantle to Elisha, and Elisha became God's voice. He transitioned from being the assistant to being the primary voice. And these seven men that were chosen, they were essentially, as we, uh, we looked at, they were the first deacons to ever serve in the church with that formal title. We talked about that all believers are called to the functioning role of deacon or deaconess work. Every one of you in this room, if you're saved, you should be doing deacon or deaconess work in some capacity, serving the Lord with your mind and your hands in some respect, to whatever level your health will allow it and things of that nature. But these were the first deacons in the church, and they had the formal role of deacons. They were humble men. They were willing to do the practical, helpful task within the church, but also as men that were full of the Holy Spirit, God would use some, if not all of them, in expanding roles and expanding capabilities beyond what they started out doing. They were all deacons, but a few, if not all of them, were pastoral in the sense that they were able to do the practical things, but they also could teach and preach with clarity and with power. And Stephen, among the seven, is raised up by the Lord, and he's given a very specific and detailed message, which we're going to see in chapter 7. And also he's given this calling to answer a call that very few people would ever pray for, and that's good to give his life in martyrdom. And he gives the message that we're going to see in chapter 7 with great passion and with great boldness, but he also submits At the same time, he submits to the very unique and painful calling of dying for the Lord, and he does it with two things, obedience and joy. You and I don't even sometimes take on minor waves with obedience and joy, right? We're like, oh, this is shin-high wave. You know, this is not one that's bowling us over, and we're whining and complaining. Stephen would be like, what are you doing? 
Wait till you see me in chapter 7. Take on that wave. <laughs> but what a treasure he left behind with this message and the example of his life and following Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title. Uh, the Tracing of God's Redemptive Plan, The Mighty Message of Stephen. And we'll look at it in two parts. We won't be able to cover all of it today. We'll look at half of it today and half of it next week. But back to verse 8. The beginning of verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith, and power. Before Luke says anything about Stephen's ministry or his message or his accusers that he, and what they speak of him, he speaks of him as the man, a man of God, a man full of faith and full of power. And for the record, every disciple, and of course all of us are called to be disciples of Jesus, but every disciple of Jesus that is full of faith, is going to see power. Amen. Say, well, me? I could see power? Yes, you, whoever you are in this room. You, if you decide, Lord, I'm going to live by faith, you will see new power in your life, poured out in your life. Power that you did not, it's usually power to say no to your flesh. Yeah. Not usually power to do great big things. It's power to live for others. It's power to do things that die to self. That's where it says, I can do all things through Christ's strength. It doesn't mean you're going to score seven touchdowns. <laughs> NFL's on every, every athlete's got that verse on there. Like, no, that's not what he was saying. But the power to lay down your life is what Jesus showed. But, it, but we're going to see power if we begin to walk in faith. And not necessarily will we see the power on the order that Stephen received. Because you look at the rest of the verse, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great signs and great wonders among the people. I don't anticipate the rest of my life doing signs and wonders. And I'm sure most of you don't either, right? Uh, I do not expect to go down and just empty Chippenham Hospital of all the sick. The apostles did some of these things. This happened with Stephen. God could do those things. But generally speaking, now that we have the canon and the full word of God, he works in the ways of teaching and preaching his word. But Stephen did these great signs and wonders among the people, just like the apostles, and the Spirit is the one that did these mighty miracles through Stephen. Stephen didn't do the miracles, the Spirit of God did them through him. In fact, Stephen is the very first non-apostle in the book of Acts to perform a miracle. He's the first non-apostle to do a miracle, and whether he had transitioned from his role as a deacon to some other role, or he was still performing his deacon roles and his deacon responsibilities, along with the expanded roles of teaching and preaching. In other words, if he was doing his original deacon stuff plus teaching and preaching, or if he had transitioned completely away and was no longer doing those deacon roles and was only teaching and preaching, we don't know. We do know that he was doing this in concert and with the apostles still in leadership over him. And we also don't know how much time was in between. If you go all the way back to verse 6 when they, when they laid hands on them, and then in verse 7, which I, I cited uh, earlier, that the word of God spread and the disciples. We don't know how long that period of time is. Was that several months? Was that a year? We don't know the length of time that's between verse 6. So in other words, Stephen could have been just doing deacon function for month after month, and then all of a sudden God raised him to another thing, or it happened in a kind of stair step. Little by little he added things to his plate, and lo and behold, we see him teaching and preaching by the uh, latter half of chapter 6 here. We don't know. But uh, there's no way of knowing for sure. But look at, look at back at verses, uh, starting in verse uh, 9 here. 
Then there arose, then there arose uh, from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And it goes on to say they were not able to resist his, um, his words. One thing, when Stephen uh, is teaching here, or when he ends up running into the synagogue of the freedmen, it's likely that he was already teaching on a regular basis, and we don't know this for sure, but he probably was already working with uh, the church, maybe in some of the house settings. Um, Like we'd have a home gathering. Uh, Several of our deacons here, you just heard Mark up here. He's one of our deacons. He prayed. Uh, Mark is one of our deacons that uh, teaches in other capacities. We have deacons here in the church that teach teens, young adults, men's studies, uh, home fellowships, and all of those things are important. And some of them even, uh, you've heard Tawan and others teach from the pulpit as well. So we have deacons in this church that not only do functional roles and can lead areas that are administrative in nature, but also have uh, the capacity and the uh, ability to teach and actually the maturity of teaching. So Stephen probably was doing some of those things uh, within the church already. And at some point, as I read in verses 9 and 10, whether uh, Stephen had preached some public messages, whether he had gone outside of home settings and actually, like the apostles, stood up and preached uh, prior to this message in chapter 7, we don't know. This is the one Luke recorded. He could have preached other messages before this. Or again, more of a home fellowship type study setting. But whether he preached some public message or whether he had, on his own, shared the gospel with a small group of religious leaders, let's say he runs into the synagogue of the freedmen at the market and he just makes conversation with them and he says, hi, I'm Stephen. They oh yeah, we know who you are. And he shares the gospel. Well, we, we've already heard that and we, we don't like that message, uh, by the way. But if that happened, or whether the synagogue of freedmen actually sought Stephen out and brought questions to him in some kind of public forum to try and trap him, the same way the Pharisees, remember they would come out of nowhere to Jesus. They would travel a long distance to come and ask Jesus questions. They'd teach her, the law says, or Moses says, you know, or, you know, these kind of things, and then try and trap him with a question. So it's possible that the synagogue of the freedmen came and sought Stephen out. Maybe they had seen him uh, leaving a study or something. They try and ask him a question, and they said, well, we, we can't take the apostles. Maybe we can take Stephen, you know? Uh, he's not one of the apostles. Uh, his miracles are lower level or whatever. I don't think that was the case, but whatever reason, they have some connection where they get into these debates with him. And it's apparent, uh, it says the synagogue of the freedmen, and it mentions uh, where they're from. It's apparent that aside from the temple itself, obviously the temple was the primary place that Jewish people in Jerusalem would go and worship God. And obviously if you were Gentile, you could go there too, but you could only go in the court of the Gentiles. Jewish people could go all the way into the court of men, the court of women, uh, but that was the primary place to go and worship the Lord. And we know that in cities all throughout the Roman Empire, synagogues were built in Jewish communities, so in places like Greece and Gaul and Spain and Turkey and Egypt, you had these synagogues that were built in predominantly Jewish communities, and that was a place where Jewish people in those communities could go and worship the Lord, and if they could get to the temple for the main feast like a Passover or things like that, then they would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem but they would have a local synagogue for weekly Shabbat and Sabbath day gatherings. Now, this synagogue of freedmen, they were 
called freedmen. We don't know exactly why, but most scholars believe that they were former slaves that had been given their freedom from former Roman uh, rulers or Roman uh, leaders or Roman masters in the cities in which, or the countries in which they came from. And once they had received their freedom, they decided to move and go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the holy city. That's where the temple was, and they'd received their freedom. And they could freely go and live in Jerusalem and worship God there. But uh, when they acquired this freedom, whatever level of uh, you know, desire they had to worship, but getting to the temple, they probably all the more uh, became more, even ferv- uh, more fervent in their faith. Uh, a little bit about their background. Uh, it's Cyrene, it says one, one was, some were Cyrenians, some were Alexandrians. Uh, Cyrene, if you um, know where Libya is, that's where Cyrene was. So North Africa, Cyrene is where Libya is today. Alexandria was in Egypt, still is in Egypt. So you have Alexandria there in Egypt. Cilicia uh, is in modern-day Turkey. And Saul, who later becomes Paul, Saul was also from Cilicia, so uh, it's possible that Saul also was part of the same synagogue, even though Paul was not a freed slave. Paul had always had his freedom. He was born uh, free and born with his Roman citizenship. Paul was Jewish from the Jewish community there in Cilicia, and some of these were also from Cilicia. So you can, Libya, Egypt, and Cilicia, that doesn't mean that those are the only countries that were in the synagogue, but those are the ones that were mentioned here. And these men, now living in Jerusalem, they had their freedom. Uh, you would think that when they were given freedom, if this is in, ca- in case how it happened, that they would, you know, they would kind of have uh, a little more compassion on people being given their freedom. But no, they were very zealous for the law of Moses. And uh, if you follow the letter, letter of the law, um, you know, hey, Moses has stoned someone, we're going to stone somebody. They end up stoning Stephen uh, by the end of chapter 7. Uh, they were no fans of the gospel, these men. Uh, they had their synagogue. They were very, very uh, close-knit. Uh, they were no fans of the gospel. They were no fans of Jesus. They certainly knew who Jesus was. And they were no fans of the doctrines, the scriptural doctrines that were taught by the apostles, that were taught by Stephen, and ultimately what the apostles received from Jesus himself. Everything they taught, Jesus had taught first. But in these public debates, again, whether they initiated the conversation with Stephen or Stephen, again, runs into them and has these conversations, at some point they become public debates uh, that they stirred up with Stephen. And it tells us that they were unable, in verse 10, they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They weren't convicted, well, they were convicted probably, but they weren't yielding to it. They weren't able to win the arguments. God had given Stephen this great wisdom, and the Holy Spirit speaking through him, he had no doubt humiliated, not that he was trying to, but he had no doubt humiliated some of these synagogue leaders because the people would see that Stephen's answer was superior than their answer. And prideful people do not like to be wrong. And they don't like to be proven on a public stage that someone else has proven them wrong. So this only further incensed them even more. And Stephen wasn't trying to do that. He was simply refuting them with truth. And sometimes when people hear truth, they just get more and more angry. Verse 11, uh, then they secretly induced men 
uh, who's heard, we have heard this man speak blasphemous words against Moses. They go on and says they stir up the elders, they seize him, they bring him to the council, they set up false witnesses. They say he doesn't, in verse 11, or thir verse 13, this man doesn't cease to speak blasphemous words. It goes on in verse 14. We've heard him say uh, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this place being the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered. So they decided uh, if they could not handle the wisdom and understanding uh, that Stephen had, they would take a different route. They would frame him with false accusations. Good thing this doesn't happen in 2023. No. Good thing we don't have people that would do this anymore in our government or in other governments or uh, anybody. You know, good thing this doesn't exist anymore. Well, you know better. Uh, but this is exactly what the high priests and the religious leaders did with Jesus. They couldn't refute Jesus. They would send uh, Pharisee after Pharisee after scribe after Sadducee, and every time Jesus would say, have you not read? Is it not written? And he would come back with something that would like, frustrate them, and they would be exposed for being the frauds uh, that they were, although they were acting like they were the holiest men in the, in the nation. And they did the same things with Jesus, and so they do, this, uh, they do that here. And they accuse him of blasphemy Moses and God. And they even use the same accusations that Jesus was accused of when Jesus said, if you tear this temp temple down in three days, I will raise up, up again. Now, we know he was talking about his physical body, but they, they say, hey, that Stephen's going to incite people to destroy the temple. Now, that's going to happen in 70 AD, but it's going to be Titus and the Romans that do it. It's not going to have anything to do with Stephen at all. Stephen will be long gone by then. Uh, but they also include that he's trying to change the laws of Moses, and they stir up the people, they stir up the scribes, they stir up the elders, and then they seize Stephen, they, and this is not like a gentle seize, they grab him violently, and they bring him to the council, and the council is known as the Sanhedrin. By the way, a major roadblock up until this point, and if you've been with us in the study, we've talked about this, a major roadblock up until this point in Keeping the Sanhedrin, they would have already killed Peter and John already. They wanted to kill Peter and John. Remember when they arrested them, the angel gets, sets them free and all that? They had already tried to arrest them and have them killed. They had them beaten. It was the best they could pull off. But they, the major roadblock in keeping them from killing the apostles, which they would have already done at this point, was that the apostles had great public support. The public still thought, these guys are sent from God. They've healed a lot of us. They've helped us financially. Remember, they sold things. They gave of th themselves to the people. So most of the public was saying, hey, we, even the ones that didn't necessarily believe in Jesus still saw the apostles as good men, honorable men. So they had a lot of public support. But here with these false accusations, Satan's always looking for a little inroad. And he'll find one eventually. At least in this lifetime, before Jesus finally sets everything straight. But he's always looking for a little inroad, and, and they find that Stephen, being not one of the apostles, maybe again they're able to kind of just assassinate his character and the synagogue of the freedmen. They are able to sway maybe even the fact that they're former slaves and everything, people have empathy from their past 
we don't understand how it all worked, but they were able to implicate Stephen and stir up the people to help the people believe that Stephen's a danger to the temple, to the law, and to the way they worship God. Now, some of these people had probably been healed by Stephen, or at least the apostles. He had done, Stephen had done great signs and wonders. Uh, but remember, some of the very people Jesus healed a few days later said, give us Barabbas. So Satan will not stop working on a person. He's relentless. Even if you're saved, he's relentless. Amen? I mean, he will work on you for the rest of your life to wear you down. And he, and he wore down enough people to say, all right, Stephen's a danger. Notice the name of Jesus at the center of all this in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs. Jesus is always at the center. He is the center. It's not so much that Stephen they hate, it's Jesus they hate. It's not you they hate, it's Jesus they hate. It's not even Israel that the world hates. It's the God of Israel that the world hates. That's why you see all the vitriol. You're like, what? Where is this coming from? I mean, people have no dog in this fight immediately hate the nation of Israel. And you're like, we got Holocaust survivors that are uh, right now uh, prisoners in, uh, in Palestine. You're like, the, how could a 90-some-year-old woman be any harm to anybody? Of course not. And, and this might not even be a person that's a follower of Christ, but it is the God of Israel that they hate. So they can't touch God so they can touch people. That's why people harm other people. They can't harm God. They try and get to something that they think uh, will touch God's heart, and of course it does. Well, all this brings us to verse 15. As Stephen, it says, And when he sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, or all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of God. An angel. As Stephen faces the council, standing before the high priest and all the Sanhedrin, every man there saw Stephen's face shining like an angel, showing the power of an angel. There was some aura of an angel that had descended upon him, and everyone could see it. It was unmistakable. It was like the face of Moses when he came down the mountain. His, his face shone. He had to even put a veil over it. We don't know exactly what they were seeing, but everyone saw it. It was unmistakable. It would be like nobody missed it. Surely that would soften them, right? Nope. Hard hearts are really hard hearts. Turn over to chapter 7 as we look at the first few verses of chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Speaking to Stephen. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from where your, uh, where your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give, him, give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. 
Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac circumcised him. And, and circum, no, Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So this beginning of chapter 7. The high priest says, are these things so? Are the things that, that you've been accused of, are they accurate? Are your accusers correct? Have you been trying to destroy the temple and to change the laws of Moses? Well, of course, none of this is true. Just as none of it was true in the case and Jesus is tried in the middle of the night, all the accusations were false. But the high priest is not interested in the truth. He's not been interested in the truth ever since he said he wanted Lazarus killed. Then he wanted Jesus killed. Then he wanted the apostles killed. Now he wants Stephen killed. Basically, he wants anyone killed that is representing Jesus. Stephen, his face angelic in some visible way that Luke says everyone could see. Stephen, in my view, senses he's not going to get a fair trial. <laughs> he just, in my view, Stephen, his response. He doesn't make any defense of himself. He's already, in my view, resigned himself. Jesus knew the night of his trial he wasn't going to get a fair trial. He knew, he'd already said that he was going to the cross. He knew where this was going to lead. And I think Stephen was well aware that the only thing that prevented the apostles from being murdered was the public support. And I think he saw that the public support had eroded on that very day. And he knew, again, I can't say this definitively. This is just my view. I, I think that his answer seems to indicate uh, that his only interest was to preach whatever God gave him. And he doesn't say, no, these things aren't true, and what I, what I actually said was this, and your guys are lying. And He doesn't say any of that stuff. All that would have been uh, fine if he did, but he... He's prompted by the Spirit just to preach. And he may even sense that this is the last time he'll ever preach. And he starts all the way back with Abraham. Why does he start with Abraham? Because he's speaking to his Jewish brethren. He says, brethren and fathers. In other words, they're all Jewish blood there. And he's saying, we all come from Abraham. All of the 12 tribes, all of us from all over. Some of us matriculated here from Cilicia, some from Cyrene, some from Alexandria, some from all over. We've all come to Jerusalem. Why? Because we all want to worship the God of Abraham because we all descend from Abraham. So he starts with Abraham. And his message will be a kind of an Old Testament survey of sorts. If any of you ever took an Old Testament survey type class, it's an Old Testament survey of sorts in a very short period of time, although it's going to take us two full weeks, from Abraham to Jesus. And in verses 2 and 8, he reminds his hearers, and who are now his judges, they're going to decide if he lives or dies, uh, his hearers and his judges, that Abraham was called by God out of another country. Abraham was not born in Israel. There was no Israel when Abraham was born. You guys all understand that, right? Israel did not exist when Abraham was born. The world had never heard of Israel because it did not exist when Abraham was born. Abraham came out of the land of the Chaldeans. Where is Chaldeans? Today it's modern Iraq. Back then it was Babylon. Well, it was Babylon in the captivity period, but before Babylon was the Chaldeans. So you had the Chaldeans, 
They become, they're the ancestors of the Babylonians. So Babylonians are Chaldeans in their DNA, if you will. But Abraham was not born Jewish. Abraham was born a Chaldean. He would have been Iraqi. He would have been Babylonian. He would have been Chaldean by blood. But God set him apart. And in other words, all of us are one blood. God decides what the nations will be, what the languages will be, and all of that stuff. Uh, but God set him apart that he would become the Jewish people because there was no Jewish people before Abraham. And he would become a nation, and later the nation would be called Israel. And he reminds his hearers, he reminds the high priest and the Sanhedrin that God gave Abraham no inheritance. They had more of it. They had, the high priest had a palace. He had a magnificent home. It, it was only rivaled by the Roman leader's home. So uh, these guys had lots of inheritance. And by the way, the priest, priestly tribe wasn't even supposed to have all this stuff. They were supposed to be uh, basically just what their sustenance was. But Abraham had no inheritance. He lived in a tent from place to place, and he went around never having a permanent structure to live in. And even when Abraham had no child, and Abraham and Sarah waited for many years thinking they would never, ever have a child, even wondering, how are we going to become anything of a country? We don't, uh, God, I don't know if you know this, we are past childbearing years, right? You know, so uh, even when Abraham was already an old man, God had promised him that his descendants were, were going to spend 400 years in oppression and bondage in a foreign land. Now, he didn't understand how that was going to happen just yet because he didn't even have a descendant, much less a bunch that could live for 400 years in a foreign land. But God had promised him also that God would judge that nation that enslaved Abraham's descendants. And to Abraham, he gave the covenant of circumcision. And it was a reminder that God was setting him apart from the nations, that he was going to come out from among them and be separate. And the miracle son of his old age, Isaac, which means laughter, because remember Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child. Like, yeah, right. I'm 90. And so Isaac's name meant laughter. But the son of his old age was Isaac. And Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day, and that still happens to this very day in the Jewish community. And um, there's a lot of even good medical reasons for that. But then came the third of the patriarchs, Jacob, who was the youngest son. Esau was the older son. Jacob was the younger son. And God had chosen Jacob. And later God gave Jacob a new name. You guys know what that name is. Israel. So Jacob is given. Before then, even the name Israel didn't exist. Even though Abraham was already the father of this, it, was, it, was, it wasn't going to be called the nation of Abraham or the nation of Isaac. God said, third generation, Jacob, your new name is Israel. And then Jacob would have 12 sons, and those would be the beginnings of the 12 tribes. And there was even not exactly that because two of Joseph's sons are actually part of the 12. This is our Old Testament survey. Right? You're, you're, you're getting the, we're doing the Old Testament survey with Stephen's message. Verse 9 through... Moving on through 16. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, notice he keeps saying our fathers. He is making the point that we're brothers. We, we're, all, we're all, in other words, he, you're, if you kill me, it's like when they tried to kill Joseph. Our fathers, he says. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So, verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. And our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money from Hamar, the father of Shechem. So, Ten of the twelve sons, ten of the twelve, you have twelve sons, ten of the twelve become envious of their brother. And they sell him to traders that are headed to Egypt. The youngest son, Benjamin, is not part of the ten guilty because he was young enough, he wasn't with them when they sold Joseph. And obviously Joseph is one of the twelve, but he's not one of the ten. So two are innocent of this crime Ten are guilty of this crime. So ten of the brothers sell their brother. Benjamin not guilty of this betrayal. Joseph himself is the, is the victim of ten of his brothers. And Joseph is a type. We talk about this a lot when we study the Word of God. Joseph is a type or a foreshadow of Jesus. He's a foreshadow of the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel and of course, Jesus is the deliverer of every soul, of every tribe, every, no, every tongue, every nation. The scriptures record no sin attributed to Joseph because he's a type and foreshadow. That doesn't mean that Joseph was sinless. He did sin, just it's not recorded to show him as a type, that Jesus was sinless and Joseph is a type and foreshadow. So everything Joseph does in his life is all high character, and there's no flaw in what he does per se. And some people can take issue, well, why did he tell his dream? That wasn't a sin. You can disagree with it, but it wasn't in and of itself. So he, he, there's no sins attributed to his life. But there are sins attributed to David. There are sins attributed to Moses. But he was a type and a foreshadow of that. And in verses 10 through 16, I'm not going to reread them, but uh, so we know that God was with Joseph. And he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery. And he allows things to happen in your life that you don't understand sometimes too. Like, oh, why would you allow this? And he's allowed to be sold into slavery and taken down to Egypt for what? A divine purpose. Actually, a a multi-thousand-year-in-advance purpose. And the Lord gave Joseph great wisdom, just like he gave to Stephen here, just like he gave to Daniel, when Daniel stood before kings, he gives him great wisdom, and later he's given great favor. Pharaoh uh, did not even know who Joseph was. Joseph had been thrown in the dungeon. He had been worked his way up to the top of Potiphar's house, who was one of Pharaoh's uh, military officers, and Pharaoh's wife wanted a relationship with Joseph. Joseph said, far be it from me to sin against God. She frames him. Framing was happening way back when, right? She frames him, like Stephen's been framed here. He gets thrown into prison, and he languishes there until two of Pharaoh's servants come in there. He interprets their dream, and later Pharaoh has his own dream, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh lifts him out of prison, and he becomes second in command 
only to Pharaoh. And God uses a great famine to bring the brothers uh, down to Egypt to find food and find relief. And Joseph sends them back, gives them a test of sorts. Uh, they're really stressed out about the test uh, that they get. They come back a second time, and then Joseph is revealed. Does that sound familiar? The second time the revelation takes place, the second time. And his brothers re recognize him on the second time back, and he forgives them even though he could have executed them. But he forgives them. Does this sound like somebody else's mercy? And in Jesus' second coming, all of Israel is going to recognize him. When his foot touches the Mount of Olives, I'm not talking about the rapture of the church. That takes place in the clouds. I'm talking about his second coming to the earth. All of Israel. Matter of fact, he'll set up his throne in Israel, and all the tribes will come back at that day. In the future, hopefully in 2024, I'm going to do a whole teaching just on the millennium reign of Christ. But Jacob and the entire family of 75, they come to Egypt during this famine, and that kicks off when Jacob dies, the 400 years of time that they will spend there as a people that's growing numerically there in Egypt. Look at verses 17 through 22. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. Hey, for y'all's family, baby Moses was mentioned in this message on your baby dedication. Just That's pretty cool, huh? That uh, little Moses here, he's going to grow up and do great things. So uh, we'll pray that for little William. But... Um, but Moses is born here, and uh, in this time, the promise that's mentioned in verse 17, it says, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the promise that he's referring to, that Stephen's referring to, is God's promise to Abraham that after 400 years, he would, one, bring the people out, two, it's a multi-pronged promise, one, he was going to bring the pe people out, Two, he was going to judge the nation that enslaved them and put them in chains. And three, they would come out with great possessions. This is one of my you know, stories that I, when I look at the Bible, I'm like, you know, God says, hey, this is how it's going to roll. When I release you, your neighbors that don't even like you are going to come give you all their money. And they're going to you know why they're doing this. I emptied my 401k, and I feel indebted to give it to you, and I don't even like you. So uh, here's all my jewelry, here's all my camels, here's all my cars, you know, whatever it would be today in today's vernacular. But that God said that he was going to bring them out, judge the nation, and that they would come out with great possessions. And as the 400 years was getting close to fulfillment, baby Moses was born. Uh, so you're probably at that point about 80 years away from the 400 years because it's going to be at the 400-year mark. And Moses is going to be 80 when he gets back there. So uh, baby Moses is born. And a new Pharaoh, this is many generations after the Pharaoh that lifted uh, Joseph out of prison, a new Pharaoh that's many generations later, um, he looks at the Hebrew people as a threat to Egypt's sovereignty. And so he intends to kill all the baby boys or to be thrown into the Nile River. You remember at the birth of Jesus, 
Herod attempts to kill all the baby boys. So here we have yet another foreshadow. Moses is a foreshadow of the Messiah that as Moses is born, Satan wants to kill him. As Jesus is born, Satan wants to kill him. And so history will repeat itself by the providence of God. Obviously, God set both these things in motion to be exactly like this. And so Moses is just like Joseph. He is also a foreshadow of Jesus in different ways. Moses is a foreshadow of the prophecy ministry of Jesus. Joseph, a foreshadow of the the Savior, and both of them are deliverers as well. But Moses was placed in a basket by faith by his parents. And he was rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. The same Pharaoh that said, kill the babies, his daughter rescues him. So Pharaoh's like, all right, if you train this Hebrew, he'll be good. If they train him, we'll have to kill him. So she takes him to be her own son. She couldn't have kids, so this was great. And so uh, the next deliverer of Israel was raised right under the nose of the ruler that planned to keep the Hebrews under his iron fist. So Pharaoh himself is raising in his household through his daughter the very ruler that's going to get them out of Egypt. Moses was educated to the highest levels of the ancient times, probably spoke multiple languages. It says here that he was mighty in words and in deeds, um, some scholars believe that this refers to his younger years, that he was like King David. You know, King David was a poet and a mighty warrior, wasn't he? Right, right, right. Uh, he could write, he could write music, he could play instruments, he could fight with the best. Of, he was a bad dude uh, when it came to the battlefield. He was a mighty warrior, he was a Navy SEAL type uh, warrior, and yet he was an incredibly kind of compassionate man with an artistic side and could write music and do all these things. And it appears that Moses was similar, that Moses could... Moses said he didn't talk great. Moses said he was not the great speaker. What I personally believe, what this is saying a lot of scholars believe as well, Moses was probably a great writer. Now, I think God noticed that. He ended up writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he ends up writing for the Lord as well. In early years, he probably wrote in Egypt and hieroglyphics and all those kind of things, speaking these languages, but he also was a mighty... The deeds speak... That when In ancient Egypt, when it said mighty deeds, almost always referred to military prowess, so that he, was, he had pulled off some great military exploits in his younger years, much like David, a multifaceted man. And so... Uh, this will also, again, God will use all these things when he becomes the leader of the children of Israel. Our next passage, we're, we're winding this down here, 23 through 29, yes. Now when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged he who oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God had God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? And all these Sanhedrin are going to wrong Stephen. Why they're brethren. But he, he, who said this to his, he who did this to his neighbor uh, wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So at the age of 40, Moses becomes very concerned for his own people. He looks on and says, hold on, I'm actually Jewish, 
And I'm the only Jewish person I know that lives with all the rights and privileges of an Egyptian. But more than that, I live in the palace. And I have the greatest education. And I see my people being suffering and beaten as slaves. And it made him feel really ill that he was not suffering with them. And he becomes very concerned for his own people. And now Moses, of course, he was a real man, although he was a type and a foreshadow of Jesus. Types and foreshadows are only that. They're types. They're foreshadows. They're not perfect replicas. And all aspects of his life are definitely foreshadows of Jesus. But unlike Jesus, Moses was imperfect. Joseph was imperfect. David was imperfect. Abraham was imperfect. They were all imperfect, but they had their types and foreshadows. Uh, and in Moses, and losing his temper, which he was prone to do even later, <laughs> once, he, once the boiling point hit... Moses it said, it's on, you know, at a certain point. But, but he was prone to this later, a lot less. He became the most humble man on the face of the earth, but don't push his buttons too much. <laughs> he used force rather than faith in that case. He used force. God wanted him to live by faith, but he used force rather than faith when he killed the Egyptian. And again, his military background, this would not have been hard for him. He saw one of his brethren be beaten. He thought that they would see him as deliverer. He thought that they would see that as, hey, I'm on your side. But they didn't see it that way at all. They didn't see him. They looked at him as, you're just a, you're an Egyptian like the rest of them. They didn't see or understand, nor did they trust him at that time. And Moses runs for his life. Again, this is where the foreshadow breaks down because Jesus never, he didn't have to run from any sin or anything like that. Moses ran for his life. He goes and marries Zipporah. In the land of Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, he has two sons. And Stephen is showing here, he's showing his accusers that both Joseph and Moses, which was all of them in the room's Jewish ancestors, Stephen and there, they were all related to these ancestors. But that Israel, in the form of their forefathers, had twice rejected saviors that God had sent. Their brothers rejected Joseph and all of Israel first rejected Moses on the first time, and Joseph was rejected on the first time, do you see the parallel? That another Savior is going to come along. It's going to be rejected on the first visit, but not on the second. And men they now revered, Stephen's making the point subtly, hopefully that they would see the light bulbs go off, that they would have rejected Moses and Joseph just like their forefathers. Last passage, and we'll come to a close. Verse 30 through 34. We'll cut, we'll get the rest of it next week. And when 40 years had passed, so he was 40 uh, when he fled, and now 40 more years had passed. Verse 30, so it brings him to 80. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not that he was. He said, I am. It's the God of the living. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and, become, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Moses hadn't been to Egypt in 40 years. That was, that was in his rearview mirror. But after Moses had spent 40 years from the age of 40 to 80, he had spent 40 years in the desert there in Midian, 
as I mentioned, modern-day Saudi Arabia. He assumed his sheep-herding life in Midian would be the rest of his life. He assumed that, you know, that would be the rest of his life, is, is tending these sheep. And suddenly God appears to him in a bush that's ablaze but not burning. And he marveled to see that this bush, he comes around and he's got the sheep behind him and he stops and he stops dead in his tracks and this bush is there and it's not a majestic tree, it's not a redwood. It's not a gorgeous Judean date palm, which were, were in existence at that time. It's not some beautiful cedar. It's a bush. The bush represents Moses. This is you. You're just an 80-year-old guy that if I put the fire on you, you will not burn. You'll actually live to be 120. And there's this bush that's not being consumed. And, and you and me in this room God, the fire of God can come upon us, and we will not be consumed. We will actually be refined. But there's, more, there's a lot more to it. I don't have time to get into all of the, the nuances that are, that are there. But he marvels to see that it's not burning, and then he hears the voice of God. Now, Moses wanted to serve God, and he thought, it's never going to really happen the way I thought it was going to happen. Now, finally, at the age of 80, he hears God's voice. I have never heard verbally God speak. I know the pastors on TV have, but I have not. <laughs> They seem to be in a holier level than the rest of us. I have not heard the voice of God. They apparently hear it all the time. Send in your money and your gifts and I'll let you hear it too. I did something like that. But, but Moses literally hears the voice of God. Not like guys that say that. He literally hears God speak to him out of that bush. He had never heard God's voice at, up until this point. And God says his name. He says, my name is I Am. I Am, the God of your father's. But the word I am, we talked about this Wednesday night, the word I am, it's where we get, it comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. So Yahweh means I am. And he's the God of his fathers, the God of the living. And the Lord told him to take off his sandals for the place he was standing on was holy. It's not that the place was holy, it became holy as soon as God showed up. Amen. Anywhere God shows up becomes holy. It's the presence of God that made it holy. And here at the age of 80... God says, I'm calling you back to Egypt. Moses like, I, I thought I'd never go back there. Did you see how the last time went? That's why I ran here in the first place. And I said, no, I'm, you're getting called back to be the deliverer. And all this time of learning to shepherd sheep, good practice. Now you've got to do it with human sheep, and they're harder than regular sheep. He, he'll learn this later. But, uh, but he's going to go back and shepherd souls instead of sheep. His 80... Forty years he was trained in the Egyptians' ways. Forty years he was trained in God's ways. Now he's ready. We have to stop here. But Stephen is building his way. What Stephen's doing, he's building his way to show them that the deliverer and the shepherd of Abraham, Moses, and Joseph is none other than Jesus. Amen. That all of them were looking towards the future shepherd and deliverer of Jesus that the one that they were now, think about it, Moses, Joseph, and Abraham. Yeah, all three. Uh, which one? Are, there's so many patriarchs in my head right now. Uh, but all three of them are in heaven worshiping Jesus at this point. Amen? But here's the thing when we come to close. When you meet people, you can't do better than Stephen did. Just tell them what the Bible says. Amen? 
We're up against the time. I know the worship team's prepared something, but I'm going to ask you to save it for a later day. Thank you, Mark. Um, my Old Testament survey was a lot to cover this morning. <laughs> and you guys have been good students to actually, and I hope that the Lord ministered to you. Why don't you stand as we close in prayer together? I'll give you all an extra worship song next week, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to cover. Lord, we thank you again for your word. It's so faithful. It's so true. Lord, we look at ourselves, and we're just uh, very nondescript, uh, nondescriptive bushes. Uh, we're nothing majestic, but we're thankful that, Lord, that you can fill us with faith, and with the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom, and that your refining fire burns away our impurities, and you can make us very, very powerful and useful at the age of 80, or 40, or even 120, as Moses would live to. And Lord, you can take a person out of prison and use them, as you did with Joseph. It doesn't matter if people hate or dislike us, Lord, you can still use it all for good. And Lord, we pray that uh, these things, these truths that you would just uh, embed them deep within our own souls, and we'd meditate on these things. And, Lord, we'd take steps of faith, just like Moses' parents. They placed him in a basket. That was their part to play, and, Lord, it was a big part to play. We don't see a lot about them, but, Lord, they played a big role. So, Lord, let, let us be those that do the small, unseen things as well as the seen things. And, Lord, we pray that you just use us this coming week as your lights and witnesses. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day. If you can stay, men, and ladies, you can help too if you want, and help us set up two tables, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. And sign up for the help to festival. Thank you. <laughs>